Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. So you want to be a rock and roll star? No? Well, how about a podcast star? Well, as it turns out, there's a new all-in-one platform just for you. It's called Anchor, and it's the easiest way to make a podcast. And check this out. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And then Anchor will distribute the podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify and Apple Podcast and, you know, everywhere else in, uh, in podcast land. And what's even better, you can actually make money from your podcast. Go figure. Uh, no minimum listenership on that. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So go ahead. Download the free Anchor app right now or go to anchor.fm to get started. So what are you waiting for? Podcast stardom is within your reach. Okay, so it's a party. Yes. But about TV. Yes. Join us every Monday for TV Party, where we'll talk about the news of the moment, the best episodes of the week, and what we can't wait to find sitting on our DVRs. We'll also chat with actors, writers, and experts about TV, elect classic characters to our Hall of Faces, deep dive into full seasons of some great shows, and more. Find us at Consequence of Sound, iTunes, or wherever you procure fine podcasts. Oh, Clint, one more thing. Is it open bar? It's BYO. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to another edition of Kyle Meredith With. It's an audio interview series presented by WFPK Independent Louisville at WFPK.org. Consequence of Sound and the Consequence Podcast Network. Wherever you're listening from today, hit that subscribe button right now so you can keep up with these interviews. I'm Kyle Meredith. We're doing a bit of a roundup today. Three bands who have two things in common. One, they all have new music to talk about. Two, they also all had a record released in 1998, and each one of those records I really, really loved. I'm talking about the bands Local H, Cowboy Junkies, and Sean Mullins. 
Now, we'll be talking to Cowboy Junkies Michael Timmons and Sean Mullins a little bit later on, but we'll get started with Scott Lucas from Local H. It was 1998 that they released the great rock opera Pack Up the Cats, one of my all-time favorite records. He's going to give me the ins and outs of that one, as well as a record that was released in 2008, 12 Angry Months, and their brand new song, Innocence, and uh, the idea of maybe whether it'll lead to a new album. It's Kyle Meredith with Local H. First off, I'm so excited to talk to you. I've been a fan for so long. Uh, I'm excited about the new music and to get to talk to you about some anniversaries, too. So thanks for doing this. No problem. Uh, and let's talk about that new single first, because uh, somewhat out of nowhere, Innocence, edited for television, uh, arrives. And it's a monster of a song, as usual. Uh, what can you tell me about this one? Because it's still all sort of a mystery. Um, it, it was a session that we had done with uh, Ken Andrews from Failure. And, you know, it's just this sort of song that really didn't have a home we didn't really know what to do with it and it was just this situation of where we just decided to just throw it out there you know we'd been talking about how to release it and and when to release it and then it was just like you know what let's just put it out next week quit screwing around so this, then you, then this one doesn't automatically lead to an album uh, i'm guessing it does not so it, it seems like i think most people think that's automatically what's going to happen. So I'm sorry to disappoint them, but we don't have any. It's sort of the way the uh, the promo game is going these days. You got a band, and they kind of tease a single out there, and there's no announcement. And then a few weeks later, they're like, "Okay, there's there's an album." So the expectations. Yeah, you yeah. Know, I mean, you you think that it would the way the internet is that you know, it would sort of lend itself to being like the singles market the way it was in the 50s and 60s but it just doesn't seem to work that way i mean people still expect albums and Mm -hmm. you know even eps end up becoming full albums so i don't know we'll see what happens yeah i mean you're an album band you know we fall in love with your albums i've fallen in love with your albums because of the scope of them because it's something to dig into song after song i'm uh i I don't mind getting a single from you Uh, again i i really am enjoying uh this innocent song here but uh i i think that's one of it um it might be a singles world in some, uh, you know, genres, uh, pop music or whatever. But I, I don't know. I think when it comes to rock and roll, that's still the game for us. No, yeah, no, you've got you definitely got a point. So you say, there, there, so this doesn't lead to an album. Is that anything you're even thinking about right now? Is it, a, you know, a concept record bubbling in your head down the line, you know, even a year from now? Yeah, yeah, we've got a few ideas that are, are definitely bubbling around, but, you know, there's, there's been a few ideas that we sort of brought up and have since kind of discarded. So you don't really know what's going to happen until it's actually happening. And you're like, all right, this is where we're going. How does it, does it work like that always for you? Or has it in the past, like, you sort of come up with the idea and you build an album around it? Um, because obviously yeah. you're famous for concept records. Yeah, that's usually what happens. Uh, you, you, you notice a theme uh, around you or you notice themes in the songs that you're writing. And so you just sort of pick up on that trail and, and just start steering everything in that direction. That's usually the way I do things. So it's not completely mapped out at the beginning. Sometimes, I mean, sometimes like with 12 Angry Months, that was definitely a conscious choice to make a breakup record. But then you have to figure out how to make that breakup record, how to make it interesting. So there's always something that you got to sort of listen to your instinct go along with that. And I guess while we're there, I mean, 12 Angry Months is a... Celebrating a big round number uh, with the 10-year anniversary here, a decade. Oh, is it? Yeah. Was it based on a real breakup, uh, that one? Yeah, it was uh, based on it, but a lot of changed names and invented situations. So, (laughs) you know, I mean, the place that it came from was real. Right. But uh, you just kind of just, uh, you know, I mean, you 
try to put in enough truth for it to be something that, that feels feels authentic. I mean, it was a cool concept too because you know every song for every month. It almost seems like the parameters were set with exactly how many songs you needed to write. Did did you have to make decisions about knocking some songs out because you, it had to be a twelve track record? No, not not really. I mean, and that was one of the questions about how to what what the you know not necessarily the concept but the presentation should be. So the twelve the twelve month thing came about after like at first there was like a twelve step program was an idea there so that would have had 12 songs and then there was a five stages of grief idea and once we came up with the the month you know it's pretty much set you just had to make sure the songs correlated it's somewhat bigger anniversary here uh that i do want to hit on as well is the 20th anniversary of pack up the cats uh this is one of my favorite records uh, of that decade of that era uh, i've listened to this record probably just about more than many other records that i've heard and uh, I'll compliment you and say it still sounds as just as exciting to hit play on the very first track and listen to it all the way through as the first time, too. It really is one of the greats. Oh, thanks. That record was, I think, honestly, the first time where not only did we have the resources, but you know, we just had the idea was completely realized for the first time. And I think I walked away from that feeling 100%. Like, I, I did it. You know, I did exactly what I wanted to do. And, you know, it, it, you had the major label resources and it all worked out perfectly. So, it, you know, it doesn't happen often, but that was that was a, a pretty good feeling. Yeah. Now, how did the writing uh, of that one work? You know, you sort of said, you know, you had the big concept in your, in your head because it's so well pieced together. More than a concept record, it's a rock opera in, in just about every sense of the word. That was definitely the idea. To, I mean, we played around with some uh, segues on As Good As Dead, but wanted to make everything segue on this record, you know, just like a Pink Floyd record. And, you know, I kicked around a few ideas, but just that was just as important as the songs, was figuring out how to piece them all together. And so what we had done is we had sent the label two demos, one with side one and one with side two. And side two was a bit weaker than side one, so we had to keep working that out. And All the Kids Are Right was the last song written, and, and that fit in perfectly where it was. So, you know, it's, it's just a case of almost to the song, we knew exactly what we wanted to do and how we wanted to do it, you know. Yeah. I mean, we knew that we wanted Roy to produce it because being, you know, rock opera and all that kind of stuff and all of his work with Queen, he was he, he was perfect. And so he helped us get all those sounds that we wanted. But, but you know, we, we knew we had a really strong map before we went in there, and it was those demos. I mean, All the Kids Are Right being the last song, what what great fortune <laughs> to at least get it in that set. Yeah, you know, we it, there, just, there was something missing on that on that second side, and and once that came together, it, it all clicked. And you know, there was like Laminate Man had a different arrangement and feel. It was more like a straight ahead punk song. And then I had the idea to sort of uh, make it sound like Tax Man. So once we did that. And that song came together, and once we wrote a second verse for Lucky Time, that came together. So, I mean, there was a lot of more work on side two that we had to do than side one. Side one was almost exactly there from, from the beginning. There was, um, you know, listening into the story of that, you know, I'm guessing there's plenty of fiction, but some of that fiction had to be based in the real stuff. I mean, even going with that single, All the Kids Are Right, sounds like there's some fun tongue-in-cheek autobiography that fit into that naturally. Yeah, there's some of that. Uh, There's uh, some about seeing that in bands that we were touring with. Mm -hmm. You know, there was some seeing that in in our behavior and, and seeing that, you know, and, you know, some of it was just kind of prescient about what would happen to, you know, at least to that part of us with major labels and stuff like that. 
Was it ever a thing that Offspring had the similar title with all the kids aren't all right the same exact year? No, no, no. You know, ours, it was completely just a Who reference. And, and I might add, ours is way more clever than theirs. <laughs> also, as a big fan of the Who, I'm automatically on your side on that one. So it's... <laughs> yeah. Um, although, you know, while I'm talking about some other folks here, uh, I never realized until just recently looking through the credits that uh, Dean DeLeo uh, played on this record. On It's a Cool Magnet, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. How did that happen? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, well, we had done the Stunt of a Pilots tour with them, and, well, obviously. And and I just, you know, Dean's uh, a really great guitar player, and, and we were working with a guy, uh, Nick DiDia, who had done engineering on all of the central pilots records up until that time so we knew that he knew him and you know and dean really wanted to meet uh roy so it, it was a good good way to get him up there and put him to work and you know get, get everything in there what is also impressive about all of that record is you know you'd can so you came off of you know big success with the song bound for the floor and a lot of times i know the label would be saying you know get you know, give me the next single, give me something that sounds like that and everything, to go for something this grand, that's not doubling down, that's like tripling down. I don't know, was that pressure there to, to follow that hit up? No, no, you know, everybody was behind us and everybody had really big expectations for this record based on what we had delivered, not based on uh, them trying to, or us, or anybody trying to replicate the sound of Bound for the Floor or anything else off of as good as dead for that matter. I mean, we, we were trying to make this big, huge, you know, pop rock record, you know, in, in the vein of Cheap Trick, but, you know, with all these concepts in the vein of, you know, Queen and, and Pink Floyd. And they were totally down with that. They were totally behind us 100%. And, and you know, it was just bad timing. You know, yeah. rap rock was about to become the thing. And here we are with these big cheap trick hooks. It just wasn't wasn't the right time. And, and the other part of that story uh, that's sort of become famous about it is then the labels merged and that sort of put you guys in the crappy situation. Yeah, it did. It did. Um, but, you know, to, to, to totally discount the fact that, that the music was just out of time at that particular point. You know, even if, even if they had so the labels hadn't merged, it's probable that it would have sunk anyway. You know, it, it's just, you can't blame shit on bullshit like that. Yeah, it's, it's just a huge shame. Joe left after that record, uh, about a year after that record came out, Joe Daniels. Uh, uh, you, you did bring him back though to do the uh, to do some of the uh, the 20th anniversary touring, right? Uh, a couple years ago. Yeah, we had him back for uh, the all of the the 20th anniversary touring for as good as as good as dead. How was that? I mean, that had to be that had to have some some decent feels to it. Uh, you know, it was fun until it wasn't, and it's just you know it's one of those things that you know. I mean, there's a reason that we don't play together anymore, and you know it it, it was it was the right right thing to do for, for the right reasons. So. Yeah. You know, beyond that, whatever. Well, now you've got Ryan Harding, uh, and then he's been in there. He's got an album under his belt at this point, right? Yeah. Feeling settled? I mean, does this one once again push you? Uh, feel like it's pushing you all in a different direction? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can look at look at it like that, and you know, you can also look at it like how different would things be? You know, musically, it, mm -hmm. you don't know. And now you're on tour. I see this summer. Uh, you, I guess you're already in the tour. Uh, Everclear and Marcy Playground. That's a, right. That's a cool lineup. Uh, when's that tour run through? You got to, still got some time on that? Yeah, yeah. We're just kind of just beginning. Um, it goes until the beginning of July. So like we'll be done the first week in July, and then uh, and that will be it. Yeah. 
Uh, and that's it, Scott. Thank you so much for uh, for taking the time to call today, especially, like I said, uh, letting me at least fanboy and geek out about Pack Up the Cats for a little bit. <laughs> it was such an important record to oh, me, no so I appreciate it. Good. I appreciate that. Thanks. Yeah. And uh, and on the new single, too, Innocence, edited for television, uh, I'll just be sitting uh, oddly by uh, until the, uh, the next one comes through. Yeah. You know, I mean, we've been playing that song live, and it's actually a lot of fun to play. You know, we, it was... We didn't know. We didn't know if it worked, but it's working pretty well. Awesome. Well, all right, Scott. We'll take care out there, and, uh, okay. and we'll see you around. All right. Thanks a lot. All right. Talk bye. To you later. Hey, a big thanks to Scott Lucas from Local H. Again, that new single is called Innocence, edited for television. Now we're going to move on to the Cowboy Junkies. Their new record is called All That Reckoning. It is one of the best of their career. It's got some Pink Floyd-inspired tones to it. There's also a lot of politics to talk about with this record, and we'll get into that as well as their recent visit to the original site of Woodstock. After that, we turn back those clocks to 1998 to talk about their record Miles From Our Home, and we'll even hit on a song they did for the Born to Choose compilation in 1993. It's Kyle Meredith with Michael Timmons of Cowboy Junkies. Hello. Well, first off, the the compliments. Uh, this is automatically one of my favorite Cowboy Junkies records with, with all the reckoning. It's, it's a hell of a record. You've outdone yourself. Oh, thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. <laughs> nice, nice to hear. Uh, the lyrics are, of course, a big part of that. And before I get into this, I, I wanted to start on the music because, you know, for, for some of the, uh, the heavy uh, content that's involved, the music is always uh, an interesting balance of that, although it's still a pretty dark record. There are beautiful drone moments. It feels very bass-heavy this time is there a reason for that yeah i mean uh, about half the songs that we, we actually started with the bass line so some of the more complex bass lines you hear are um we're kind of the, the the structure for the song right so um alan came in with a whole bunch of ideas which which i then took and then created the the the, the, the eventual song structure and the lyrics and the metal melodies around so that would that would make sense that the, the bass would then become a, a primary feature of those songs because that's kind of what they're based around yeah, have you all written like that before? Because this sounds like sort of a different record for you. Well, we have written like that before, um, but I do think Alan's approach to his bass changed, so that so that uh, that changed a lot. So, and, and you know, he's he was kind of working with a new bass and new bass tones and a few effects and things like that on his bass. So I think that you know, and 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 bass is such a big part of our sound, anyways. It's always been a big part of of the junkie sound. So I think once that changes, uh, it's sort of changed the overall sound of the, of the band. So yeah, yeah, I think that's probably what you're hearing. I, I thought of it a few times, like this is, this is almost like your Pink Floyd record. This is the, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that was, that we did use that as a benchmark. We were sort of, um, you know, we've always been big Pink Floyd fans growing up in the seventies. All those records were kind of mind blowing for us. So the, I think with this one, part of it being the bass, but also, you know, we, as you said, there's lots of drones and uh, sort of the weird keyboard elements in there. We wanted to sort of incorporate some 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 sort of sounds which you don't necessarily know what they are they're not necessarily your standard synth sounds or or keyboard sounds we and alan was a big part of that too just sort of finding different tones and ideas and then i and then when i was mixing i'd sort of you know affect those in a different way trying to create our own sort of our own palette i guess right which which you can do there's so many different processes out there that that you know you you can if you you take the time you can really create your own palette and that's kind of what we did with this record well as i mentioned i feel like it does match the uh the content that's going on in these lyrics so well the anger comes out on this record and and completely justified you know it's uh, Mm -hmm. at least i'm connecting with those lyrics a lot because of that i mean you you find a song on here like like sing me a song well you know i guess 
is that there's, 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 there's to me there's two sides these to lyrics, and I think they're reflected in the in the music as well. And um, there's sort of a, the, uh, the 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 personal and the political, I guess, or the social and. Uh, and they, to me, they kind of merge. So, you know, I, I always start my writing with on, from a very personal point of view, and I start to work through stuff that I'm going through. You know, I'm, I'm in my late 50s now, and, and you know, I've been, in, I've been in the same relationship for 26 years. My, my kids, I have three kids who are now leaving home. I have parents who are still alive, thank God, but very close to not being alive. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so all that sort of stuff is percolating in my, in my day-to-day life. And um, so a lot of the songs start from that point. But then, you know, when the, the, the world around us is in such a volatile place and there, there's so much disruption going on. And, and uh, I, I think it was, it was hard not to bring the two together, you know. So the disruption that was going on in my own life is sort of being paralleled by what's going on in the outer world as well. And, and then also, you know, with, as I say, with my kids leaving home, you know, they're, they're all of a sudden I'm, the, the little bit of protection I could provide them is now being taken away and they're sort of heading out into this world. So it becomes, becomes more relevant in a very serious way for me. So I think all that sort of comes together in these songs. And so there's, there's a bit of sadness. There's a little bit of, hopefully there's some hope, but there's a lot of anger too. at sort of uh, where we're at, I think. Yeah. Looking at the timeline, you know, as it's been written, this is the longest period between mm-hmm. Cowboy Junkies records. And I thought, you know, even if you were on the album cycle, all these world events were just ramping up when that would have normally hit, when you might have normally put out a record. And then it only got worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, as I was writing, you know, it was kind of uh, fortuitous in a horrible way that, that, you know, things were kind of beginning to devolve as I was writing. And um, so as I say, I start, start, started from personal, but then I began to notice sort of, you know, these sort of little little ideas come creep into the songs that could be depending on your perspective, which could be taken from a, a macro level as opposed to a micro level. And so there was a lot of fuel there, you know, a lot, there, there's a lot of fuel in my own life. And then there's a lot of fuel from the outside. And, and, and again, it never stopped. As we all know, it, it's daily, right? <laughs> the right. Fuel, it's, which is kind of the hard part. And I think that's, that's, that's the next, that's the next phase when we're all just being bludgeoned and we, we can't deal with it anymore. <laughs> So it was, it was kind of a weird time. It was a, it was a good time to be writing, I guess. A good time to be trying to express what's what's you know what's going on inside and outside. I mean, there's a line, you know, sing me a song of America and 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 sing me a song of love. And you know, I started thinking, you know, as a Canadian band, there's always sort of been the the sometimes tongue in cheek phrase you know, down here in America when things go bad. You know, it's like, well, I'm heading up to Canada, but mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like that's much of an escape uh, as as one well, might think. It's not, you know. I mean, I, you know, the, these days it, it it is phenomenally different up here. You know, you you cross the board. We've always felt that. Even, you know, as a band, we've always felt there's a little less tension up here. Even, even you know, America is such an intense country. It always has been, um, usually for the good. You know, it's just, it's just a very vibrant, vibrant culture and society and intense place to visit it and certainly to live. You, you, you know, people who live there don't necessarily recognize that, but it is a very intense place. So when you cross the border up into Canada, you know, your shoulders do go down a little bit and it always have, but certainly these days, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a that widely, widely different place and different environment and different, just the way people relate to each other. And I hear, you know, American friends come up here all the time going, Oh my God, this is so, so nice to, to get away for a bit. But, you know, ultimately we really can't escape, you know, we're, we're so tied in politically and socially and economically. 
especially socially. You know, I mean, you know, my wife's American. My 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 youngest sister lives in L.A. Has lived in the states her whole entire adult life. Has two children who are American. Her husband's American. You know, so you know, every fa- you know, we work. Our basically our job, our 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 band uh, survives because of our work in the states. So, and that's you know, that's true of every family you go through. I mean, you'd find very rarely find a Canadian family that doesn't have some pretty substantial tie to the U.S., whether it be economically, socially, you know, in their family or whatever. So, you know, our countries are so entwined, and, right. and rightfully so. They should be, you know. Uh, so, And what, what happens down there it really does affect us up here in, in, in all sorts of different ways. And I think ways that Americans don't really realize, because I think we're, <laughs> we are, we're a pretty insignificant little population on, the, on your northern border. So, but, it, you know, you, you guys shrug, and it, we feel it up here. So um, you, the, what's happening now is... <laughs> It's seriously affecting us, and I think it's I think it's affecting us. You know, right now it's affecting us sort of psychically. You know, so, you know we're 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 feeling sort of the the anxiety and the the worry and uh, and you know and just the confusion. Really, there's a lot of confusion. So I think that that, that you you can't escape. You can't escape up here. That's for sure. You're you're talking about you know how age kind of plays into this a little bit into mm-hmm. lyrics and you know thinking about how we handle politics as we we get older. Could these have been written the same lyrics at a younger age because uh, to another point you know anger and concern is anger and concern no no i don't think they could have you know uh, um i mean from the per- from the personal point of view they couldn't have been written uh, I, and really i think the way these work like the the political and social aspect of these lyrics only work because they're tied to the personal i don't i, I find from my point of view that that if I'm writing, if I if I strictly to write a political song, it would it, it wouldn't work for me. You know, I I don't feel it's necessarily the like songwriting is necessarily the, the place to to voice those concerns. I think they can they can come out in there, but but I think they have to be tied to the personal. Because for me, music is very personal, and and my songwriting is about connecting on a personal level with the listener. So I think there has to be a personal side to these lyrics, and I couldn't have write the personal side of it to this stuff, you know, 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, really. So. I, I think, as I say, there was this kind of this, with this weird coming together of the political, social, and, and personal, and so I don't think that would have happened 10 years ago. I do find it interesting timing uh, with all that we're talking about here, though, that uh, uh, you all just ended up in Bethel Woods, which most people know as the, yeah. uh, the site of yeah. Woodstock, uh, 69. Yeah. And, and how could that have been better timed with, with the idealism? You know. Yes, yes. It was amazing. You know, it's, it was interesting being there because it's. I don't know if you've been there, but the, the, the museum is fantastic. They, the, what they set up and the, you know, the, the the history, the way they outline it and and show it, and and um, it's quite. It's really, really well done. And, and part of what they've done is they have on the permanent display is they show what was happening politically and socially at the time. You know, in, in 1968 and 69 and the late 60s, and and you know we all we all know that history. But when you begin to read through it, you go, oh wow, <laughs> we, we're 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 not even close to that. <laughs> like that, that was some, you know, when you mean like the assassinations and the riots and the and the, you know, the the the, the basically the shoot, the shooting of students and you know we're we're talking some pretty serious some pretty serious stuff going on in the late '60s that it was is really rammed home when you begin to sort of stand in front of a plaque and read all this happened. You know, and when you look at timelines, you know, you go, wow, what a what a tumultuous and absolutely terrifying time to be in to live in and. Uh, 
as a young person especially. So it was interesting to be there, but yeah, but it did it did put things in perspective a little bit, you know. These are these are bad times, I think, but those were pretty bad times too and they came through. You know, everybody came through, so hopefully hopefully the same same happens. Yeah, and just that perception of getting lost in the weeds when it's you're right in front of you. Yeah. Well, exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I love the way all this has came out in all the reckoning. Again, it's just a powerful record. Um Thank you. I hope you don't mind jumping into the time machine just a little bit. I like to play the anniversary game and one of my other favorites of your records, Miles from Our Home, uh, turns mm-hmm. 20 years old this this year. And I sort of feel like this is a record that gets overlooked a bit in the canon, especially since, you know, it carries a big round number in the same way that the uh, Trinity Sessions do. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. It, it does get overlooked. I think, you know, part, part of that was the business. You know, we were still with major labels at the time. And that was that was actually our last record on a major label. And that was one of the reasons we decided to get out of that that, that side of the game was because, it got so buried because Geffen, which was, which was was a record label at our time at the time, went through some major changes and you know disruptions and firings and they, they basically were that that was right when uh, you know Napster was happening and all the illegal digital downloading and the record industry sort of threw up its hands and uh, just began to cut jobs and our record happened to come out right right in the middle of that and, <laughs> and the entire top management was fired and all the all the staff that we had known across the country who we'd built relationships with were, were gone so that record was basically released and let go you know it was, it was never really promoted so yeah it did get lost for sure yeah sound wise that was probably you you might have been more in step with the mainstream during that one and the record before it than than you know maybe any other point in your career i mean it's the this is basically almost your alt rock period yeah very true i mean you know there there's a real conscious thought when we when we made miles from our home you know we used a, a big name producer for the first time he's john lecky who had Worked with uh, Radiohead and The Verve and a lot of a lot of big English bands and um, and we put a lot of money into it. You know, it was sort of we had a big budget for the first time. Really, we had a big budget. and We thought, well, we're probably never going to have this budget again. So let's enjoy it. And we we went to Abbey Road and did some work there. And and uh, say we hired John, which was an amazing experience. And the idea was let, let's let's you know let's let's make something that is exactly what you said, more in tune with what's out there. We, we'd had a lot of success with the, the record before, which is Lay It Down, and we had we'd had some radio success with it. And we thought, well, let's build on that. And so we put all this money into it. And of course, <laughs> just just to, just to have it all be basically flushed down the toilet because the record company disappeared as we released oh. it. So, but it was it was it was a, it, there was a conscious just a conscious thought of doing that for sure. Yeah, it's such a good record. And that title track, uh, like we still play the title track regularly uh, around here. Oh, it's you. it's oh, such excellent. a yeah, big song for us. I know um, sort of one of the other little uh, micro stories that went along with that record too, like this was the moment that Towns Van Zant passed away, which you all were really close mm-hmm. with. How did that uh, hang over the sessions or did it change the mood of the, any of the songs? Well, I mean, the song "Blue Guitar" was definitely written for for and about Towns. I wrote I wrote most of that song on the day I learned he died. So that that and that's a big wreck song on that record, I think. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, it was very it was very sad. You know, when I, it kind of freaks me out when I realize how young he was. Of course, at the time, you know, I, I was however old I was, uh, forty, I guess, and he was only fifty two or something like something crazy like that. Yeah. Of course, of course, when you're 40, somebody who's 52 seems really old. But when I turned 50, you know, I thought, oh my God, Towns is so young. So it, it was, it was a lot of the, I, I guess, the writing was was affected by it. But not, you know, I mean, it, you know, you you move on. It was, it was one of those things that it was tragic and horrible. But you know, I, I can't say it was it cast a pall over the whole process. But certainly, we we tipped our hat to him while while we were writing it and and. and put something in there for him. And his legend has only grown since then and, and people still Absolutely. getting introduced to him. It's, it's a great, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, no, yeah, it's, it's funny. Like when, when we first met Towns in the early nineties, you, 
you know, he'd, he'd written and recorded all of his best known songs, but they weren't best known at that point. Right. You know, his, 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 he was kind of not very well known. And over the years, he slowly, his songs have slowly been picked up and recorded by more people. And, and uh, his name is well, well, much more better known than it is it was then, for sure. You know, Hallmark's, you know, the, the 20th of Miles, of course, were at the 30th of the Trinity Sessions. Uh, Pell Sun is 25. Like, these these big albums will continue to hit these milestones now every five years or so. Like, how often do you take the time to celebrate them? How often do you, you know, put yourself in the past? Well, I mean, we did with Trinity, you know, with that, we, did, we did a 20th anniversary when we did the Trinity Revisited uh, documentary and, and CD. And, uh, we got, you know, we got Ryan Adams and Natalie Merchant and Vic Chestnut together to record that, to record Trinity Revisited, which was a lot of fun. That was sort of a, a, a serious, a serious looking back. You know, for this year, for for the 30th anniversary, not not because it was the 30th, but just because it was time, we, we re-released Trinity on, did a really beautiful um, vinyl remastering of it. Um, the other records, you know, we—I don't know—we're—we're—we we're, are because vinyl is sort of up and happening again. We are trying to gather up everything and re-release it all on vinyl, but not necessarily because it's an anniversary, just because you can do that now and there's a bit of a market for it, basically. So, you know, I—I I don't know. I don't—I don't. We don't really, you know. It's funny you tell me that Miles is 20 years. I, I didn't know that, you know. Uh, so I guess we don't—I guess we don't pay attention to them, you know. We, we we're certainly playing. You know, we're always playing live and. We're always choosing songs from all all of our catalog, so so the songs don't disappear. You know, the the, the individual songs live in our live performances. But yeah, so I, I don't know. We don't we don't really dwell too much in the past. We 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 celebrate it when we play live, but not not consciously. Well, I'll ask about one more, just as a curiosity. Sure. Uh, Twenty five years old. There was a song uh, called "Lost My Driving Wheel," which ended up on the "Born to mm-hmm. Choose" compilation, which was a favorite compilation of mine too. Mm-hmm. Uh, just sort of what you remember about that one. You know, kind of a kind of a spare yeah. cut there. Well, you know, that's an important song in our repertoire. We still do play it live sporadically. Uh, I think we play, actually, funny enough, I think we played it at Bethel Woods. I think it's one of our favorite, like, one-off recordings, that, that's the, the version of Driving Wheel. Um, it, we, it's a David Whiffen song. It was a Canadian writer. But our version is kind of taken from the, the Tom Rush version, and, and Tom Rush's version is really spectacular. And um, we just, I, 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 I don't know, I can't remember how we came about recording it. It was just, we, we record, oh, I know, we were going to a studio to check it out for, for the Pale Sun sessions, and we just wanted to bring in some songs, just, you know, just to sit with the engineer and check out the studio. So that was one of the songs we brought in, just, just to see, you know, what, what, what we could get out of the studio, and we recorded it, so we had it sitting there. So when, when the Born to Choose people came to us putting that record together, we gave them that song because so it hadn't been released yet. But it's, it's always been a really important song to us, it's, um, especially live. It's sort of a, it's one we love playing, and it's... Um, and the recorded version is one of our, you know, it's still to this day one of my favorite recorded versions of, of a song that we've done. So, yeah, it's important. Well, Michael, I thank you so much for taking the time today. And again, all the compliments on all the reckoning. It's it's a powerful record. And uh, I, I love keeping up with you all and love to hear what you what you keep doing out there. Great. Well, thanks. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Pleasure. And uh, we'll see you around. Thanks. Thanks a lot. All right. Bye. Take care. Bye. Bye. And thank you to Michael Timmons of Cowboy Junkies. Again, their new record is called All That Reckoning. Now for the third guest on this episode, Sean Mullins. A lot of people know him from the song Lullaby, and in fact, it was 20 years ago this year that the album that was on, Soul's Core, found its release. So we're going to go back in time to talk about that, as well as how that record ties into his new project, Soul's Core Revival. He's re-recorded all those songs with a lot of friends, giving them a new shine for a double-disc collection. He's also going to tell me about a, a run-in he had with the band Dokken, how Leslie Fram changed his life, covering Chris Christopherson and a heartbreaking story 
about losing his wife to suicide. It's Kyle Meredith with Sean Mullins. Hey, Kyle. It's Sean Mullins. How are you? I'm well, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. Let's see here. Uh, I know we're sort of, you know, we're going to weave in and out of the past and the present because it's so intertwined with what you're doing right now. But let, let, right. let, let's, let's sort of start with, uh, with, with 20 years ago because this is the year that Soul's Core celebrates its first real big anniversary. Uh, and, and it's sort of, I guess, where right. your headspace has been this year too, right? Definitely. Definitely. It's, uh, you know, it's a matter of kind of 20 years. You know, the first thing was people around me were saying, hey, you need to do something because it's 20 years, man. Come on. And I was like, wow, you know, I thought about that. And I said, well, Sony Columbia owns the Masters. Why don't we just re-record the thing instead of making like some kind of, you know, having to deal with Sony? No, no offense to them, but I'm not really a, a priority for them probably at the moment. Right. So. I thought and there's nothing wrong with uh, re-recording all the material, kind of doing it like we do it now, 20 years later. It's uh, it, All that stuff has grown, you know, and some of it's fairly much the same. But just after playing something so much for over the years, it will evolve and change and grow. And that's kind of that's what the Soul's Core Revival Project really is. It's a celebration and a redo of everything in a, in a different way. You know, we're, we took liberties with uh, key, ch- you know, key signatures or uh, time signatures. Sometimes we change the time from a three-quarter time to a four-four or vice versa. Lots of different things. And then, of course, there's a whole solo record that has stories and songs with just me and an instrument. So it's, it's pretty fun. Yeah, so it's, it's actually two albums that's going to make up Soul's Core Revival? That's right. And, you know, as far as physical albums, once we go to vinyl, it may be four, four discs because of the amount of material on it. Uh, it's at least three vinyl discs, and it might be four. A lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because yeah, the, the songs have, the songs are jams now. Some of them extend to seven or eight minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a it's a jam band and with really good story songs. So it's kind of an interesting concept. It's a little bit different than than stuff that's out there, but it has the sound almost of you know. There's moments that you hear Almond Brothers or really old panic or there's moments because you know some of the members of those bands are in are in the band you know like mm-hmm. the guy that was a guitar player for sea level and the keyboard is randall bramlett they were in that band and that was right in the middle of all that you know and uh so there's a southern rock jam kind of element as well as a you still got this kind of basic singer songwriter songs as the skeleton of it all you know you talk about the music changing when you sing a song, any of these songs, for that long, do some of the lyrics start to really take on different shapes for you as well? And maybe, maybe what I'm asking is, you know, how you relate to the meanings behind the songs? Oh, totally, man. That's, what, that's the weirdest thing about it to me is the meaning of the songs have changed over the years. And it's almost like they make sense now and they didn't before. I, you know, when you write a song 20, 22 years back, you'll you're in a certain space, you've lived a certain amount of time, you've experienced a certain amount of life. And, you know, 20 more years, all of a sudden, those songs take on a whole nother meaning. You know, it can shimmer now is about my boy. I didn't have a son when I wrote it. I didn't have a kid at all. And uh, so it's, a, you know, really beautiful. It's a nice experience. And you know, we're touring around this stuff. And sometimes we can do it with a band. Sometimes it's a trio or a duo. It just depends on, on the, the size of the venue, really. We don't have a label, you know. We're doing this all on our own, so it's uh, with the help of the crowd. You know, we're crowdfunded at this point, so it's it's pretty fun and 
kind of pioneer-like in a way, kind of full circle in a way. Like you say, it's, it's what I was doing 20 years ago before I ever had a deal. We were kind of doing it on our own and, you know, doing just fine. So, <laughs> Well, listen back on it, you know, one of the th- things, I don't know why I never noticed this before, but there's so many places within these songs. You know, there's songs with places in the title, you know, and others that are not sort of name check spots here and there. When you were writing yeah. this, you know, and, and things were bubbling up enough to where you started getting the label attention, was this was this sort of the road record? Were these songs written on the road? Is that why they embody so many different uh, actual spots? Yes, and they were all journal entries. Most of them, actually, not can't say all of them, but Lullaby, September in Seattle, Twin Rocks, Oregon. A lot of these, probably seven to eight of the songs, were journal entries that happened to rhyme as i was writing them i kind of i kind of was playing with rhyme at the same time doing a writing exercise and i never really altered the lyric you know there some of them if you really start to dive into the lyric you'll go okay well that might have been that might have could have been done better i mean i look at it now anyway and say that but they were honest you know put pen to paper and then go hey i'm gonna make a song out of this journal entry and so that's really what they were so they were titled where i was the night i journaled it and uh, the music came later. Typically, I would write these these journal things later. And when I got back from that, especially the West Coast tour of the fall of 97, was when I really developed most of that material lyrically. And then, you know, over the winter, I worked out the music and we recorded it in the spring of 98. And by July, I had a big, big old fat record deal. <laughs> so. <laughs> and where did that come from? Uh, you know, I mean, obviously... You built it up on your own, as you were saying. You know, is this just from from touring and touring and touring, where, where it finally kind of comes together? Well, I think yes, as far as being ready for what's coming your way, yes, that helped. But having the song and then having an incredible amount of help from Leslie Fram. I don't know if you know Leslie, but she was the program director at 99X at the time. Mm-hmm. She's now head of creative at CMT in Nashville, but she she was kind of the head of the station in Atlanta and. Uh, she was given the song Lullaby from the guy that played the local music show, Steve Craig, who's a, an old buddy of mine. And Steve would play my music on his local show, as he would do other artists that were local, you know, just because he liked it. And and he had, you know, feelings about this song that, that kind of was bigger than a local show. And he handed it to Leslie and she flipped out and called me and said my life was about to change. That <laughs> she was going to spend the, spend the song about 30 times a week on a major radio station so it did it really uh it caused a ruckus and it she wrote letters to other stations and sent cds and never asked for a thing in return just really really championed the record and you know i found out later she did the same thing with artists like collective soul marvelous three um a bunch of the local folks that way earlier than me from 92 on when 99x started leslie was kind of a she was a go-getter she she played they played stuff they wanted to play which was cool the big break was was Miss Leslie Fram. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, hell of a hell of a ears, you know, that she, that she's always had and everything because, you know, nailing it especially on that single which goes on to become Grammy nominated and uh and a Hallmark song of yours. I mean, how how's that song? You know, if that song has changed through the years because I, I know for some artists that's also, you know, sort of a, you know, double-edged sword. It's that's as uh, as Damon Auburn has been saying lately, the ball that you're chained to, in a way. Have you ever felt like that with this one? No, I, I've always felt appreciative of the song. I felt like without that song, I'd still be doing this, but on another playing field, you know, and uh, another league. 
So that song brought me to the dance. I'm very thankful for it. I never get tired of playing it. It's kind of weird. I never get tired of delivering that chorus that's difficult to sing, as you can imagine, being a baritone. And uh, <laughs> for some reason, I love it. I, just, I love it. I love the crowd's reaction. What's really fun is playing a place where maybe there's there's people there that always there's going to be people there that don't really know your music. They got drugged there, okay, by someone that's a fan. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of getting through the set as best they can. They're enjoying it. But all of a sudden, when we play that song, they perk up and go, oh, that guy. I remember <laughs> that guy. <laughs> the rock guy. You know, so you remember the band Dawkins? Yeah, of course. All right. So the other night, we're in Sacramento. I think it was Sacramento and uh, Santa Cruz, one of those places. And, and we're in the elevator, and a band gets in the elevator with us. We start all going up, and we've all got guitars on our backs and gig bags, you know. And these guys all had, like, eye makeup on, and, they were, you know, we were all sweaty and from our gigs, but they had clearly had kind of a glam rock look. And uh, they were like, how'd your gig go, man? And we were like, ah, ours went great. How about yours? And good, good. You know, where'd you play? Oh, we were over at the coach house. So, okay, we were over at so-and-so. And uh, what band are you with? And the guy goes, Dockin'. And uh, he starts walking out the elevator, and the younger guy in the band turns around, and he goes, what are you guys, what's your band? And I went, Sean Mullins. And as the elevator doors close and he's on the other side, he goes, the rockabye guy? And then the door closes. <laughs> <laughs> and me and my bass player and guitar player just fell out laughing because, of course, we all grew up with Dawkins. Right. And now someone in Dawkins knows by chance who I am, which is hilarious. So, the rockabye guy. Um, yeah, oh, the rockabye guy. So, yeah, yeah, that'll be the next album. <laughs> You're uh, you're docking crossover. It's it's only around the corner. It's it's so it's right in yeah, grass. Yeah. <laughs> but, right. I mean, it is a is it an iconic song, and, and and you know it's it's still everywhere. I mean, you, certain you know places that you can always you know walk into, and 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 it's still part of the uh, I don't know the lifestyle culture of whatever stations and, and types of music that they're playing, and 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 to have a song that I can say has multiple hooks all the way through it too. I mean, it's easy to say you know the everything will be all right or the rockabye part, but even that opening line and this, the way the story just kind of, you know, rolls out, especially in a baritone, you know, it's almost like a, a Tom Waits kind of opening there. It's always been fun to sing along to. Well, I'm a huge fan of his and, and Christopherson and, you know, Isaac Hayes and a lot of baritone basses over the years. I grew up hearing from my dad's records and, and then records that I would get into as well. And I guess I, I started to try to study baritones and how they how, how do the ones that are surviving in pop music do it? Because when I say pop music, I'm meaning something other than classical or jazz. Mm-hmm. You know, how, how do you survive? Because it's really a tenor's game. Any decade you go to, the bigger hits are almost always delivered by a high-voiced male or a female. So it's hard. Even my little boy said, Dad, if you want to be a rock star, you got to have a high voice when he was about four. <laughs> You know, and I was, and I thought that was great because he loved ACDC at the age of four. He just thought, you know, TNT and songs like that, and I love it too. Mm-hmm. And so we were, you know, I thought that was really insightful, you know. And uh, and I said, yeah, buddy, I have to really work hard and and I have to work my falsetto a lot to get up there because I think you're right. People do want to hear a high voice sometimes. <laughs> well, you mentioning Christopherson, that's uh, the you know the, that cover is on uh, Soul's Core too. You did Sunday Morning on there, which is I did, and you know. I was, up to that point, I'd covered one of his songs on all my records. I was kind of a tip of the hat to Christopherson and his writing and delivery influence on me. And of course, this record's 
way beyond kind of a Christopherson approach. It's more of a soul delivered record. I'm 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 kind of unplugged all the the plugs and I don't have I, I didn't let myself be controlled vocally at all. And so I'm I took the live you know, I just took a, a real big leap of faith and I didn't worry about okay, do I need to sing it just like I did before? No, you don't. You need to sing it like you want to sing it now. Now that 20 years has gone by and, you know, I, I lost a, a wife to suicide uh, a little over a year ago. You know, I've got a, a, a his mom's still around, though, and, and, and my boy is, is great and healthy. And there's there's all this life, you know, around and, and hard times, too. And in a way, all that stuff is kind of, you know, in a, in a, it sounds kind of, it sounds, stupid really but i have to say it because it's my truth it kind of gave me the blues it it gave it made me start to sing differently kind of going through some hard times in my life and i think i'm just embracing that and people seem to really dig it live you know it's not that i'm night and day different singer i'm just a little bit more loose and more jazz influenced with what i'm doing i might take a note to a whole nother place that i never did before and i'm not even consciously thinking about doing it while i do it and I used to be afraid of that. I would, I was afraid of not delivering a song a certain way. And uh, it feels kind of nice and free, you know. I, I, I didn't know about the hardships and everything. I'm really sorry to hear that. That's, uh, that's, 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 that's sort of life, yeah. you know. Gosh, I mean, I look around and, and it's, a, it's that kind of world. I mean, we're all going through tough times. And I'm thankful for music and just the people in my life, the friends, the fans, the people, music in general. You know, it's... Uh, everyone around it it keeps me going and and so no i didn't i'm saying that because i i think overall it's become a a positive force mm-hmm. this whole thing you know you, you mentioned your son a few times and and how shimmer is is kind of become you know uh, about him that that song sort of took on a life of its own during its time too right i mean i i didn't know this but it became part of uh olympics at some points yeah what's funny is that song was written in 95 so you know, three years before Soul's Core was released. It was on another album called Eggshells that I released in 96. So the song had to be, what what happened was Columbia didn't hear another single on my record. They were like, we got to have something else. We can knock down the doors at radio. And I said, well, I've got this old song called Shimmer that people seem to really take to, you know, people like it live a lot. It's got a nice chorus, I think. So they hired Peter Collins, the great producer who, gosh, he'd done everything from Queensryche to... Indigo Girls to pass the Ducci to the left-hand side or whatever. You know, the guys like, produced a ton of records. And it was a five-minute song, as it was, as a lot of my songs were back then. I didn't know about timing for radio. I didn't think about it, of course. <laughs> there was no reason to. And uh, Peter kind of helped me with all that. He was like, look, man, I know all these lyrics are important, but the fact is you're going to have to cut two halves of two verses to make this work. Or, or you've got to cut the bridge, and I don't recommend that because I like the bridge. So, you know, he was child gloves, but at the same time, you know, this is what we have to do. And it helped. I think it helped to get a lot more airplay that way. And then, yes, we put it on Soul's Core after about, I don't know, 300,000 were printed. I think we stuck it on the record after that. And then it took on uh, some international attention with Australia, and they used it for their kind of like their theme song, I guess, for their Sydney Olympics yeah. and their athletes, which was obviously an honor and very cool. Yeah, so, yeah it's a weird what a song can do years later, you know, you kind of dig it back up. It keeps coming back around. I, I, It's a shame, you know, that the label didn't instantly hear a song because one of my all-time favorites, although I don't know that it would have 
done great on the radio, but uh, you know, like and on a rainy night is such a great mood yeah. on the album. I mean, it's it's sort of like nothing else on that record too. I'm so glad you like that one. I can't wait for you to hear the new one. Oh, really? Yes, if you like that one, because that's my favorite change of all. Is and because it's not really. It's just kind of better. It's the same vibe, but a little more going on in it and extended. We go back to the chorus again after a long jam. Cool. Uh, Randall Bramlett saxophone in the middle. It's really beautiful and haunting and kind of. I've always loved that song too. But yeah, I guess it wasn't right. You know, <laughs> man, we're talking about Columbia. You know, it's Columbia right, records. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I, <laughs> I was totally lost. And it was like you know. I had hit one home run and someone stuck me in the big leagues all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a and you better believe it. The pub the publishing company, the EMI, the president of that company, that was a scary man. He's a great guy, but you know that next record after Soul's Court didn't do nearly as well. And boy, he let me know it. Oh no! And no, he was just like, "When are you going to write some songs that I can make money with?" You know, and uh, it was very, it was very to the point and very silk suit and uh <laughs> me in t-shirt and blue jeans still <laughs> but yep. yeah man you learn a lot when you know, that's a big business and um and you know i i kind of got the feeling that it was a bit big for what i wanted to do i i really wanted more control of the kind of material and you know after the thorns project i really felt that way because that was pretty much put together by the label and and management and it was a nice idea but the personalities conflicted and and that was a hard thing, and that was three years of all of our careers. So, it, you know, by the time 2004 rolled around, I was almost done as far as, like, that's enough time for people to completely forget. And so I had to kind of start over. You know, guarantees were back down to a few hundred dollars again, and you had to start over. And I didn't mind doing it. That's what I do. And, and uh, you know, we don't care if it gets down to singing for our supper. We're here for the music, you know, and... That's kind of as long as you can feed your babies and keep it going. <laughs> <laughs> What's well, so There's a. It reminded me of the line in in, in Oregon where I uh, said, "Can't get rich playing in coffee houses." Which... Right. Unless you do a week straight, you know, which is what I do now. Right. You know, right. Right. I'll do three or four nights at the coffee house or something. But and um, the crowds have been great. But I never was a stadium act. You know, it was always a club, small theater type act, and. And uh, it'd be it'd be fun to do more festivals. I think that's where this band, when we're playing live, could really shine in a festival setting. It could be really fun for people. It's a different thing, and it's it's such such good musicianship. It's kind of beyond what I'm hearing in most festivals. It's it's like oh well, these guys can really play. I mean, I've got some just unbelievable class, you know, a musicians. So it's so much fun. Well, I, I can't wait to hear how it's come out on this uh, Souls Core revival, which uh, gets released this fall. What's the date on it? Well, the first date was July twenty, and I missed it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So it, it's it's later this year, yeah. You know, I think September by the end of September for sure. This fall for sure coming out. Yeah, I, I got behind on my artwork and things like that, and listening to mixes while I'm trying to be on the road. And so yeah, we just sent it off to mastering, so we're done. We just have to kind of get it all all made now yeah yeah well i i can't wait to hear it i mean you've uh you've enticed me plenty uh throughout the uh interview here so <laughs> well man i'm excited too i hope you do like it 
And and you know that sort of it's being you know looking back through all of this, uh, are are you still writing uh, you know for whatever comes after this as well? Absolutely, I'm actually working on a song right now for an upcoming film, and I'm uh, you know always always trying to write a song. I my friend Chuck Cannon years ago said, Sean, I can't wait to write a song, and that's how I feel too. You know. <laughs> awesome. Well, we're uh, really yeah. fortunate that you keep writing those songs too. We're big fans around here. So we always appreciate it. Appreciate all you guys do. Thank you, Kyle. Yeah, anytime, Sean. It was a pleasure talking to you. Uh, I'll look forward to Souls Core Revival, and we'll see you next time you're around these parts. See you soon, man. Thank you so much. All right. Take care, man. You too. Bye. Bye. And a big thanks to Mr. Sean Mullins, the latest release, Souls Core Revival, and the 20th anniversary of Souls Core. And again, thanks to my all my guests today, Local Age, Cowboy Junkies, and Sean Mullins. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button right now wherever you're listening from. Maybe it's on YouTube. Maybe it's our podcast version uh, at iTunes or Podchaser. Uh, if you're listening from there, uh, give it a rating while you're around, and then uh, go ahead and leave a review as well. After that, you can head over to WFPK.org. That's where I do a show every Monday through Thursday from noon to 3 Eastern. We'll also find some bonus episodes of this series. I'm Kyle Meredith. I'll see you next time. Consequence Podcast Network. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.